So Money Episode 592, Adam Braun, founder of Pencils of Promise and Mission U. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Do you think a college degree is really that important anymore? Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You got to wonder, right? Will college even be around in 10 years, 20 years? The institution as we know it is starting to transform thanks to visionaries like my guest today, Adam Braun, who's recently launched a college alternative called Mission U. And you may know Adam as the founder of Pencils of Promise. It's a nonprofit that's built more than 400 schools around the developing world. And now he's launching a very different type of school experience, college experience called Mission U. It's a one-year program and it offers students the modern skills and experiences to launch what he believes to be a successful career. Adam was first exposed to what he describes as a broken higher education system when he witnessed his own wife's experience. She had over $100,000 in college loans and no bachelor's degree to show for it. So Mission U became Adam's solution for a higher quality debt-free education that positions students for great jobs. Now, in our conversation, we discuss whether a college degree is worth achieving these days and how does he see the college landscape evolving? Is Harvard here to stay? What are the skills Mission U thinks are necessary to prepare students for today's economy? And what top employers are hiring Mission U's students? And then Adam gets personal. What he learned about money as a kid growing up in Greenwich, Connecticut, one of the richest towns in America. Here's Adam Braun. Adam Braun, welcome to So Money. It's a pleasure to have you on the show finally. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here. I've been watching your success uh, ever since launching Pencils of Promise. A lot of uh, the guests on this show, like Ramit Sethi and Lewis Howes, are big contributors and activists uh, and love Pencils of Promise. And your work uh, is really, really remarkable, given that you are so young, too. It's And I know your story where you were backpacking through developing countries as a young person, and you're still young, but in your early 20s and inspired by a young child who told you that if you gave him a pencil, it would be the mean the world to him. And that to you kind of was the beginning of an, your, your new chapter in life, which was uh, launching Pencils of Promise, which is, as for those of you who aren't familiar, Pencils of Promise is this incredible uh, philanthropic venture where you establish schools in developing countries and giving young kids uh, a chance, a chance really for a better life. And now you have a new venture called Mission You. And it's sort of a, a new take on college. And you're starting now here in the U.S. to implement this as opposed to outside our border. So tell us a little bit about Mission You and, and what you hope to accomplish with it. Sure. So, um, you know, Mission You, and, and it's just a U at the end for anyone that's listening uh, rather than Y-O-U. So M-I-S-S-I-O-N-U um, is, is the name of the new venture. And, um, you know, Mission You is a college alternative for the 21st century. And uh, what we do is we prepare students for the jobs of today and tomorrow debt free. 
it, it was really inspired actually by seeing, you know, what happened to my wife. Um, you know, she grew up with a very loving family, but without a lot of financial means. Um, and, uh, you know, she really bought into that, that kind of promise that I feel like as a society, we've, uh, you know, set a norm and, and kind of expectations uh, for young people that the, you know, almost a guaranteed job to social mobility, uh, you know, the kind of pursuit of the traditional American dream uh, is most enabled, the kind of single biggest lever uh, is uh, college, right? You go to college and, you know, suddenly you have a better life at the end of that four-year experience. And so, you know, she bought into that. She went to college initially out of state. Um, within about two years, she had to transfer back in state um, to public school because the the debt burden was becoming incredibly high on her. And about a year later, uh, due to, you know, the tremendous financial hardship that she was under, she had to leave school early to start working. And uh, she became one of what's now 34 million Americans who have some college credit without a bachelor's degree. And by the time that I met her years later, um, she had $110,000 of student debt without that degree. And it just was this crushing, crushing weight on almost every single aspect of her life, you know, her, her career aspirations, her emotional well-being. And, uh, you know, before we got married, as I learned more and more, I, I said to her, you know, I know this might sound crazy, but I think you should declare bankruptcy. And, uh, you know, at least you'll be absolved of this, you know, thing that's going to hold you back throughout the rest of your life. Um, before we get married and then, you know, you'll take on my credit and I have, you know, good, clean credit. And, uh, that's when she told me that student debt is the only debt in the United States right. that you cannot be, uh, but there's absolved. a glitch. Yeah. Yeah. Your bankruptcy, which was absolutely insane. I was like, no, that that's not possible. It's just, I literally didn't think it was possible. And, you know, I thought, yeah, yeah I have a, a background in both finance and management consulting and certainly know a lot of people in the space. So I was like, let me just figure this out. There's a way out of you know, everything financially. And she was right and I was wrong. Um, you know, uh, it is the only uh, debt that um, you can't get out of. Not only that, if you if you die or if you leave the country, they'll go after your next of kin because they usually mm -hmm. have to co-sign on your loans. And, uh, you know, it's on incredibly high interest rates. And so, you know, she was paying down like basically a second rent every single month, somewhere between $500 and $800 a month. And it was just scratching at the interest, hadn't even touched her principal. So, you know, once I learned about her situation and then, you know, on the flip side is somebody who had built Pencils of Promise and, you know, now hired hundreds of people across the organization. A lot of my, you know, close friends uh, that I've developed over the years are other entrepreneurs that have built really high growth businesses. Uh, what I came to realize is that, you know, for all of us, a huge challenge was finding qualified talent because just having a bachelor's degree doesn't mean all that much anymore. Uh, it, it's no longer that kind of clear proxy that you're getting somebody who's coming out of school um, prepared. And so, you know, we have two major issues with a very broken higher education system in this country. The first is that young people are leaving uh, school, even if they get a degree, completely unprepared for the job market and without the necessary skills or experiences to bring value to an employer. And then the second is that whether they get the degree or not, they're leaving school with insurmountable crippling levels of debt. And um, so we set out to build Mission U as a, a true, uh, you know, solution. Uh, for a very particular type of student, one who's value oriented, one who, you know, is really eager to build a successful career. 91% of college students, when asked why they're going to school, say to get a better job. It's the number one answer given. And yet institutions, colleges don't really see that as their responsibility. And they're not held accountable to really any form of outcome uh, in that student's life and well-being after they, you know, leave, leave the uh, walls of the institution. And so, um, you know, we built Mission U as a true solution for a very particular type of student or family, right? I mean, the, the type that we define as a career starter that's really eager to, um, you know, look at their higher education from 
a uh, return on investment perspective, uh, really seeking value out of their experience. Um, and uh, we do a couple things that are, you know, really uh, probably different from uh, the majority of, of uh, institutions of higher education. And, and I'm happy to walk you through those. Yeah. So it's a one year program versus four. And right. can you really give someone the skills in a year and then what is the experience like? Am I going to a campus? Am I, because that's also part of the attractiveness of college is the idea of going right. away to school, meeting new people. It's not just the classrooms. It's what yeah. you learn outside the classroom that helps you grow. Sure. So how does that compare? Sure. So, so I'll, I'll walk you through a couple of the components of Mission U, but I'll just start uh, with the financial piece because that's one of the greatest concerns for anybody that's entering college today. So if you think about the way that a traditional college works, it's almost like uh, going to a restaurant uh, and the restaurant saying, you know, pay us $500 uh, before you ever see the menu or the meal. And you have to say, well, I don't know how many courses, how many and blah, 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 blah. And, and they say, no, no, no matter what, it's $500. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what, you know, our Yelp reviews say or whether we're, you know, high end, fancy, you know, French restaurant or, you know, kind of run of the mill fast food. You, we're we're going to be able to charge you the same amount. You have to pass up front before you experience any of the, the actual um, product. Because what happens is, you know, the middle of the road school or the non elite school today charges very similar amounts to, you know, what a Harvard or Stanford might charge, which is insane. But uh, we don't have, call it, um, you know, pressures in, in the marketplace to adjust those costs because, again, students are getting huge loans and lines of credit uh, from either the government or, or private lenders and not understanding the long-term ramifications of those decisions. And so at Mission U, we decided from day one to dis, uh, essentially position our program in such a way that we only succeed when our students succeed. So, in fact, we charge no upfront tuition at all when you get into Mission U. Uh, there's no upfront tuition. Instead, uh, we invest in you for a full year. And on the back end of that year, uh, if and when you are successful, which obviously, you know, every single effort that we're partaking in is uh, seeking to enable that, then we recuperate uh, that investment in you after the program via an income share agreement. So what that means is um, we receive 15% of your income for just three years, only once you're making $50,000 or more. Uh, and so, you know, the average individual who's gone to college and taking out loans is going to be paying back those loans for, uh, again, on average, about 21 years. For us, it's 15% for three years and only once you're making $50,000 or more. And, you know, there's a period of deferment. If, if you, it takes you a while to find a job, you're not, you know, paying us anything in that period. If you have a great job for two years and then you lose it for six months, again, you don't pay us anything there. And, uh, you know, we have 48 months of deferment. So if, if a few years go by and you aren't making, you know, $50,000, then you actually end up paying us nothing because we don't think that we should be rewarded uh, if you don't find success. So that's the first piece is uh, zero upfront tuition. You know, there's, there's also no interest rates uh, on that type of, um, you know, situation. There's, there's uh, really no, uh, you know, kind of uh, aggressive tactic that's going to, in my opinion, screw over somebody in the way that I saw, you know, my wife. Uh, being really damaged by the decisions that she made related to her her college experience. So that's the first part. The second part is, you know, if you think about your college experience, and, and someone recently asked me, uh, what was the class in which I learned the most in college? And my honest answer was an independent study where I spent a full semester building a business plan. Uh, you know, one professor really coached me through it. And then I felt so confident and by the end of it that I actually ended up launching that business. It was a basketball camp. It became the largest camp in my county. Uh, and really kind of set me on my path to being an entrepreneur today. 
And so, you know, when it comes to the curriculum, we really deeply believe in creating what we call T-shaped learners. And so what that means is across the top, you have a breadth of uh, core hard and soft skills, which is the focus of our first trimester. So that means things on the soft skill side, like uh, are you a great team player? Uh, so collaborative teamwork abilities, critical thinking, creative problem solving, and uh, effective uh, communication. Um, on the hard skill side, we have eight core hard skills. These are the things that I was trained on uh, at Bain at the very beginning of my career that I think make you essentially an athlete in any company. Uh, you're valuable regardless of the position. And these are things like uh, business writing. So the average kid coming out of college has no concept of how to email in a business context. That was my favorite uh, class in business. I have to say <laughs> business, yeah, writing. Yeah, I mean, how to write. Oh my gosh. Because I, you know, people that I hire sometimes that's the one thing that is lacking. That is so disappointing is that not even just business writing, just writing because everyone's yeah, texting and doing shorthand right. and 140 characters. It's like, can you please just write an eloquent email that, you know, exactly. Gets to exactly. business writing is, is one of the hard skills. Public speaking is another project mm-hmm. management, requirement gathering, Excel modeling. So uh, I also I noticed that you're in me, mainly two very um, job opportunistic parts of the country, which is New York and San Francisco. And who are the companies that are partnering with you to help you bridge that gap between graduating and finding a job and not only any job, but a job that's well paying? Right. So um, right now, actually, our, our, our first cohort uh, is uh, in, aiming to be in um, San Francisco Bay Area. So, you know, to your question before, and, and then I'll also address the employer piece. Uh, what is the kind of you know experience look like? Um, that first trimester is your foundation. The second trimester is a deep dive on your major. Uh, right now, there's there's one uh, major that we're offering, which is data analytics and business intelligence, rapidly growing industry, super high growth. Kids that come out of college have no clue how to actually use the tools and um, you know components and software that that you actually need to demonstrate proficiency there. It's very well paying again, um, and uh, you know huge huge need across almost every type of industry, and now being applied to almost every single department within most companies. Uh, and then the third trimester is what we consider your internship. You, you actually uh, work in small teams on real clients, real companies, uh, and you build a, a robust portfolio uh, that can be shared publicly uh, to demonstrate that you have proficiency in that area in which you're seeking to get a job. Um, the majority of the program happens online, um, but these are not pre-recorded lectures that you're watching by yourself. We're huge believers in the cohort model, which means that you are in a group of about 25 throughout the year. And, uh, you know, throughout your day, uh, you are in live virtual classrooms with these cohorts, oftentimes in very small groups within the cohort or paired up with somebody working on real problem sets and project based learning. But we absolutely think it's essential that you come together in person to build those lifelong relationships, to have those coming of age experiences and ultimately for accountability and cohesion between yourself and your classmates. So the way our model works is all students in the cohort have to live within 50 miles of the city in which their cohort is based. And again, you know, our first two cohorts are uh, based in San Francisco. We're seeing huge demand for New York, you know, L.A., a couple other major markets as well. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't think that it's it's right to put the burden of cost on an individual um, to decide that you have to live in an overpriced dormitory or you have to live in the expensive downtown part of a major city. So that 50 mile radius allows people to choose what makes the most sense for their financial situation. And what we're seeing with, you know, those that we're admitting is that a lot of people are not currently based in the San Francisco area. That was kind of a huge surprise for us. But, 
I would say, in fact, the majority of the cohort that we're currently running admissions on and moving through acceptances are people from across the country that are choosing to move to the Bay Area to participate in this cohort of Mission U. And, you know, that that you know experience that you're describing related to college is mm-hmm. what we're seeing being replicated with Mission U. So to address your question related to the companies and the employers, before we ever started recruiting students, we were recruiting employers and we developed uh, what we call our employer partnerships. And that means three components. So the first is these companies really advise us on our curriculum. You know, we're not starting with a dean who's been sitting on a campus for 25 years thinking right. about industry. You know, we start with C-level uh, executives, um, the heads of HR, and then the frontline hiring managers at leading companies. And we say, you know, if you could pause all of your operations as a business for a year, which obviously they can't do, but if you could, and you would just spend a year training your ideal employee to come in and hit the ground running at a junior to mid level in your company, making somewhere between 70 and, you know, around a hundred thousand dollars, because they have a lot of these roles, what would you do in that year? And that helps us think about how do we calibrate and and create our curriculum around the needs of leading companies that are harbingers for, you know, what's to come in an industry, right? What are the um, character traits that you look for? What are the uh, software or, or tools that you're using in your company that would be really critical to have somebody demonstrate that otherwise you'd have to train them on and imagine if you could have them in, you know, from day one. And so that's the first part. The second part is we actually co-create content with some of these companies. That means case studies, um, you know, senior leaders will address our students through either virtual or in-person talks, uh, you know, on sites where our, our students get to actually visit these companies. And that was something that I never even experienced, even in, you know, my undergraduate uh, uh, days in, at, at a great institution. I still never really spoke to anybody that worked in a company or visited a company that would have been so eye opening and helpful for me. And then the third part is that they get early preferred access to um, hire our top graduates. And right now, our employer partners are companies like Spotify, uh, Lyft, Uber, Warby Parker, Casper, Harry's, and a whole bunch of others that, you know, when I spoke to uh, our target audience, which is, you know, right now, millennials call it 19 to uh, 29 in particular. These were the companies that I kept on hearing they would give anything to get a Mm -hmm. foot in the door at. And uh, ultimately, you know, that's what we most want to enable for, for our students to help them achieve the success that they're driving towards. What's interesting is that in addition to the C-level executives that are helping you craft the curriculum on your site, I also noticed that you have people from leading universities like Harvard, MIT, Stanford. So this begs the question, Adam, do you think that this is, if you're getting cooperation and enthusiasm from people at traditional schools, colleges, universities, is that a signal to you that they're going to have to, they're also going to follow in your footsteps or they, they, they prefer your model. Um, you, you know, you're getting people from, you're kind of you know, getting people from these other universities to help you out. It's like the competition in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that say to you about the future of, of where mission you could be headed? Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, my, my, uh, observation thus far is that the vast majority of people that work in higher education are incredible individuals. You know, they've committed their life in some capacity to service, uh, in particular, oftentimes to, you know, the next generation that's going to emerge and, you know, become the leaders of our society. And so there's so many great people in higher ed. And when you really, you know, d- dive in and talk to them, what they share is that they recognize that the system is broken and that it's not working for millions of people across the country. They're just part of, you know, an entrenched system that it's very hard to move the needle on. And oftentimes when you kind of look at the history of innovation, it starts out with an innovative idea that, 
you know, a, a kind of separate entity creates and initially it's seen on the fringes and then it starts to grow really quickly and then eventually it gets adopted by mainstream players. And so, you know, I think that there are certainly, um, you know, colleges right now that do an amazing job of educating their students, but they're few and far between. And for those, they might not change all that much in the coming years. I think they're making really concerted efforts to, um, you know, make their experience more affordable. But you have a lot of colleges today that are, in my opinion, solely focused on institutional preservation. Uh, they're not necessarily focused in the way that they should be on serving their students because it doesn't make financial sense when you've spent, you know, tens of millions of dollars on these huge buildings and, you know, you have tenured faculty and a ton of administrative bloat and they just don't move very quickly. And the only way that they can allow that call it hundred year old or 40 year 50 year old institution to survive is to continue to raise prices and put that burden on students. And so, you know, my, my belief is that uh, in general, the people within higher education are phenomenal. Uh, I, I really do believe that. I think some of the uh, entrenched components of the system uh, really need to change and evolve. And what I'm seeing thus far is that some of the things that we're bringing to the table, uh, in particular, you know, greater, greater accountability to, to student outcomes and really, you know, investing in your students is something that uh, I'm hearing uh, a lot of, of, you know, feedback and interest that, you know, whether it's from an institutional level or there's a lot of individuals that are saying, you know, hey, I love what you're doing and I've worked at this elite institution for a while. Can I join you in some capacity? Wow. And I think over time, you know, we're going to see uh, more and more shifting within the higher ed space. And, you know, I, if I had to you know look at a kind of you know magic ball and, and decide the future, I think the elite call it top 50 universities, they're protected. Their brand is, is powerful in the marketplace. And I don't think they're going anywhere. But there are 4,400 registered colleges across the country, and the vast majority of them, in my opinion, are not worth the uh, cost of entrance, and the ROI is just not there for a student. That's where Mission U can be an incredible fit. And we're also hearing from students that go to elite universities that even though the brand is powerful, uh, what they're learning is not applicable to you know, the, the, um, call it career and, and skills oriented education that they're seeking to really enable for themselves. And so they're also applying. And now in, in our case, now that we're admitting students as well, uh, really, um, matriculating towards, towards mission you and our, you know, our goal is, um, you know, obviously to, to scale pretty quickly, but maintain high quality. And that means that we have, uh, you know, cohorts essentially, uh, with open admissions year round. And so while, you know, a cohort starts in September, uh, there's additional cohorts starting in January, multiple starting in uh, the spring of, of 2018 uh, and then the fall as well. So throughout the year, you know, if you think about it from the employer's perspective, uh, you don't just need, you know, uh, new hires that are going to begin in the summer or September. Uh, you need them year round. And so we really want to serve that. All right. So, Adam, tell us a little bit more about you. I mean, we don't have a whole lot of time left. I want to dedicate a lot of the show to learning about Mission U because I just think it's so fascinating and, and revolutionary. Um, but tell us a little bit more about maybe when you were growing up, your your financial memories. I think we all have them as children growing up are these experiences that teach us about entrepreneurship or money or business. Yeah. What was one really standout memory for you? Um, you know, one of my absolute earliest memories, it might even be my first memory, um, was the second day of Hanukkah. When I was a little kid, I must have been like maybe four years old or something like that. And, uh, you know, at, at that stage in my life, um, one thing that was very clear to me was that even though you know I was raised, um, I'm Jewish, my family's Jewish, 
the majority of the people in my town were not. Um, and what I came to realize at a very early age was that uh, Christmas is a much better holiday than Hanukkah. Um, well, come on, you guys fun. get eight nights it, of gifts. Well, exactly. And this, this is what I want to dive into was that was my one counter, right? To all my friends was, you know, while I recognize like their holiday seemed better and more fun and all that stuff and celebrated, my counter was, hey, I get eight nights of gifts. And so, you know, first night of Hanukkah comes and I'm a little kid and, and we get a gift, right? My brother and I and my, and my sister, I don't even think it was born yet. And uh, the second night of Hanukkah comes and I'm all excited for my gift. And my parents sit, um, you know, my brother and I down and they say, uh, tonight you don't get a gift. Tonight uh, you're going to pick a charity and we're going to make a small donation in your name to the charity that you choose. And that's how every uh, other night is going to go for Hanukkah. So you're going to get four nights of gifts. And then, you know, the following night you're going to pick a charity and we're going to donate uh, in your name, you know, small, I think it was like 25 bucks or something to uh, the charity that you choose. And it's, it's truly one of my very first memories. And, you know, if I think back to, you know, why I ended up kind of the way that I am, that is just absolutely inherent for, for me that, um, you know, as I build a career, the work that I undertake is such that, you know, hopefully it leads to call it personal success. But if I'm not in some capacity providing service to others and giving back to those who don't have access to that, you know, level of call it opportunity, um, then it's just not fulfilling for me. It's, it, it doesn't feel like I'm doing the thing that I'm meant here to do. And, and if I hearken back to it, I really think that, you know, there was many other things that my parents certainly did to try and instill those values, but it's really one of my first memories was, you know, every time that you receive something, you also give to others. Um, and so we only got four nights of gifts, but, um, you know, those four nights of giving, I, I think were really profound and it, it literally was how I was, you know, every year Hanukkah came and it's certainly something that I plan to do with my kids as well. What a great lesson. You know, you bring up this fulfillment variable, which is something that I think this generation, this younger generation is extremely focused on finding meaning and purpose in their work. And you were lucky that you found it and discovered it relatively early on in your path. What would be your advice to somebody who wants success in the sense that they want to feel accomplished and they want to feel like they're getting an ROI on their education and the work that they put in. But at the same time, they also want to, they want to be attentive to finding a, a path that is meaningful and purposeful simultaneously. Can those things coexist? Can you be quote unquote successful and fulfilled at the same time? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tell a lot of young people and I do a lot of public speaking on college campuses and all that stuff after, you know, my book came out and fortunately became a big book. I, there was a lot of demand for me to speak at colleges and companies. And so, you know, especially it's interesting because I used to think, oh, this is a message just for young people. And what I'm seeing over time is that, you know, as we age and, you know, become adults in the workforce, we can kind of lose that fire. And, and so there's so many people after a talk that I've given at, you know, random company X that have come up and said, like, that was exactly what I needed to hear. And I, I need to follow exactly what you kind of described as a very particular path. And what I try to share is that true self-discovery begins where your comfort zone ends and that it's really critical that we find times throughout our lives to make ourselves purposely uncomfortable and leave those places in which we are most content and satisfied, because that's where the real growth occurs. Um, you know, if you want to find out where your sense, not of passion is because passion is very fleeting. I'm not a huge fan of telling anybody follow your passion because I think your passion will disappear and it'll evolve into something new. It's almost like a, the latest diet, uh, or kind of fitness craze that those, those are passions, right? But they disappear. Uh, pursuit of purpose is, is what I'm am most fascinated by. And I find most enduring because if, if you, you know, have a passion and then suddenly it becomes really hard, you drop that passion. 
uh, or something new evolves. If you feel like your absolute purpose, the reason for your existence is to accomplish a certain thing, whatever that might be, you absolutely find the fortitude to push through the tough moments. And I think that you find that sense of purpose when you leave your comfort zone. And it's not about kind of all the places in which you uh, necessarily know things about yourself, but it's actually those places and kind of moments of discovery. And, you know, for some, it might be travel. That's what it was for me in my early 20s. And, you know, backpacking through the developing world, primarily alone. I learned a lot about myself. What did you um, learn? What was the surprising thing that you learned about yourself? Um, you know, I, I, I learned, I mean, there's, there's a lot cause I, you know, went through a lot of countries and a lot of years of, of doing this. Um, I, I mean, one thing that, that I would share with anybody else is that, um, it's hard for me to get to these kind of moments of, uh, recognition of my essential truths, uh, when I am not taking, uh, time to really introspectively reflect. And, uh, the only way I get to that is by writing, by physically writing with, you know, a pencil or a pen in my hand in a journal with the expectation that no one is ever going to read it. Because otherwise, if I'm, you know, posting on Instagram or tweeting or, or Snapchat nowadays, or, you know, even blogging, like I find that the act of blogging is more for somebody else than it is for me. You know, I'm trying to share something with another person that might be beneficial. And, you know, I write all these blogs at adambraun.com. Unfortunately, there's a really big following there. But the stuff that, that I have my personal breakthroughs um, within is, is usually when I'm writing by hand in my journal with the expectation that no one's ever going to read it. And I've had um, journals that I've been writing in since I was 16. You know, so I have probably 15 to 20, like completely full. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I don't write for six weeks. Sometimes I write every day for a week. But it's in those kind of periods in which I, I kind of find that sense of where I want to point my compass and, and so that's the first component, I think, to finding, you know, fulfillment and, and what we were describing, you know, a few minutes ago, of what, what I would consider the intersection of success and significance. But the other one, and this kind of goes back to your previous question about, you know, my, my upbringing and kind of the uh, notion around money is you just have to work your ass off and you have to completely. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah. You just have to completely outwork everybody else. And, and it's not just if you're trying to build a big for profit business. If you're trying to build a not-for-profit business or a for-purpose, like the intersection of the two, no matter what, there's somebody else that has a similar idea that's trying to go out and do it. And if it was easy, somebody else would have done it already. And so you kind of have to crave that nonstop um, uh, roller coaster ride because it's not just the highs. In fact, it's a lot more lows, I find, than even highs. But you have to like love the journey and you have to have this insane work ethic. And so you know, we, we were raised in a very, um, you know, affluent town. I, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. We moved there when I was four, but my dad's, you know, an immigrant who came to this country when he was three with two parents who were Holocaust survivors. My mother lost her father when she was very young, uh, grew up without much, you know, very loving families for both of them. But, you know, when we moved to Greenwich, the one thing that was always reinforced and anyone who's ever met my dad will, you know, tell you that that's the type of guy he was, you know, with kids, uh, in town was that like, it was very clear that we weren't going to be silver spoon kids, that we weren't going to get handouts from our parents, that we had to work for everything that we were going to accomplish in our lives. And, you know, when I was in the early days of Pencils of Promise, it's why for three and a half years, uh, I was a, not enough, you know, a, a, a fundraiser. I didn't like asking anyone for money because it was so counterintuitive to the way that I was raised that you don't go, you know, looking for a handout. You put your head down, you work and you accomplish something. And so for three and a half years, you know, I didn't ask a single person outright for a donation to Pencils of Promise because I was uncomfortable with it. Uh, instead, we organized events and we sold tickets to those events and it was more, you know, I'll provide value in exchange for your monetary support. 
And then I came to realize for us to really scale, I need to learn how to do this and take my ego out of the center of the equation. And, um, you know, went through a course and the course taught me uh, how to fundraise effectively in the not-for-profit space is really about, um, you know, recognizing that you're a messenger. You're asking on behalf of the beneficiary. You're not asking on behalf of yourself. And once I took my ego and, and that the ask was for me out of the equation, I realized I was asking for all these children that we were serving and continue to serve. Um, and I get to be the messenger to stand in front of somebody who has the resources and unlock those resources to both benefit the children and the 400 plus schools that Pencils of Promise is now built around the world and the 70,000 students that we serve on a daily basis, but also to bring great value into the donor's life in a way that, you know, that money sitting in their bank account isn't necessarily going to provide. Um, and so so those are the two things, you know, finding that that sense of purpose by leaving your comfort zone and then just you know, putting your head down and working your ass off for years and years and years and loving that work ethic. In some ways, it was great that you only started asking for money three years in because by then you could show, you know, you had absolutely you had a, a track record. You had evidence of how meaningful and impactful the organization was. And thank you for saying that you have to work hard. You have to work smart, but you also have to work hard. Sometimes people say, I just want to learn how to work smarter and not so hard. And it was Gary Vaynerchuk, I think, who told me, you know what, do both and then yep. see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gary's become, right. you know, a super close friend. He's almost like a big brother to me, I would say. Aww. Um, it's like a family almost relationship. Yeah. Like if somebody saw our text messages and how many like hearts. <laughs> I didn't know that about you guys. Message, All right. Like, That's really super strange. cute. Um, but you know, I, I think we share that DNA. I mean, we're also both diehard Jets fans and that that's mm -hmm. kind of a commitment to a life of misery. Um, and, and hoping that in 30 years we can win a Super Bowl. But you know, I, I think there's just a recognition um, that, that, yeah, you got to be smart. You have to prioritize at the start of your day and say, I'm going to do the hard thing that scares me most. But you also just have to you know, work your butt off and and um, and recognize that that is necessary for long term success. Adam Braun, thank you so much. Everyone, Mission U with the letter U, not Y-O-U dot com. I have a feeling we're going to be hearing more about this and it's going to be uh hopefully revolutionizing the way we think about college and actually approach college. Thanks so much, Adam. Yeah, my pleasure. One other thing, just just for your audience, in case they're interested, you know, we, we try and uh, open source our admissions process. So, you know, we don't look at SAT, we don't look at GPA, um, you know, we look for for talent uh, and and really commitment and work ethic, all the stuff I was describing today. Um, and so if anyone goes to our, our website, missionnew.com, at the very top um, for this uh, first cohort, um, if you refer us a student, even if it's not, you know, the perfect program for you, maybe you've already completed school. But if you're, you know, a child, your niece, your nephew, someone you mentor, you think is a good fit. Uh, if you refer them our way uh, and you do it through the little um, referral link that's at the top of our website, uh, not only will we give that student $500 in credit towards that um, income share agreement at the end that they won't even have to contribute, but we'll also actually give you $500 in cash once they um, get into the program and complete and are successful. So um, just wanted to extend that to uh, awesome. any one of your listeners um, that hopefully, you know, you can actually uh, be a part of that admissions process and helping us find amazing people that we can really invest in and support. Fantastic. That's great. All right. Thank you so much, Adam. I know you're busy, so I'm going to let you go and really appreciate you stopping by. Sure. Uh, absolutely. And if anyone wants to reach out, I'm, I'm always accessible. It's just Adam at the letter I promise.org and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Adam for stopping by. His website is adambraun.com. He's also on Twitter at 
Adam Braun and Mission U's website is missionu.com. All this info back at so many podcasts.com where you can download the transcript and also listen to the audio and leave a question for us for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. And I say us because I am now inviting listeners onto the Friday episode to co-host the show with me. So you'll get not just my thoughts, but also a very interesting and cool listener to give feedback. Thanks for tuning in everyone. And I hope your day is so money.